Why? Because God expects families to worship together. That's why in the public reading of Scripture, when Paul writes his letter to the Ephesians, and he says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. He's addressing directly the children in the assembly when the public reading of Scripture is done because he assumes they are there and present. And if a child is old enough to understand those words, children, obey your parents, then they're old enough to be in the worship service. Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are in part two of our sermon, How to Do Church. And today, Pastor Carl will be addressing discipleship as we evaluate our fellowship with the Lord's people and the Lord's work. We are in the book of Acts, chapter 20, verses 1 through 12. Please join us in Acts chapter 20, verse 1, as we continue. So when you think of discipleship, you shouldn't think first and foremost the guy down the street or your neighbor or your guy, your friend at work. We should think first and foremost our children. Those are our number one disciples that God has entrusted to us. And if a parent doesn't build up and encourage their child, they'll find the encouragement somewhere else. Now, unfortunately, today, too many Christian parents have given that responsibility to youth ministry. And in many circles, youth ministry has become the substitute parents. It's only been about 50 or 60 years that we've had what we call youth groups. And I'm not opposed to a youth group. If I were, I wouldn't pastor a church where we had one. I came to Christ through a youth ministry of sorts, a college youth ministry. I was discipled initially through a college youth ministry. But there are many things in the modern church that you don't necessarily find in the Bible. You don't find Sunday school anywhere in the Bible, but most churches have it. You don't find our adult Bible fellowships anywhere in Scripture, though you'll find the principle of people meeting within smaller spheres to get to know one another. Uh, You don't find seminaries anywhere in the Bible. That's a new phenomenon. You don't find missionary agencies anywhere in the Bible. There's no evangelistic associations anywhere in the Bible. There's no specialized college or sports ministry or a host of other specialized ministries. Yet when you think about encouraging, I want to drive this home today. Think first and foremost if you have children and grandchildren of building into their lives. Because if you don't, someone else will. In a lot of churches, when we're on, we're on the subject of how to do church, they're doing Christian parents a gross disservice. And that in some churches, all the way through high school, the children are segregated. We had someone come to our church, and I called them up as a visitor. They said, well, the church I came from, they had a middle school church, and you don't have that, so we're not going to come back. And I tried to reason with them. I said, look, that church was not doing you a favor. They were doing you a disservice. Why? Because God expects families to worship together. That's why in the public reading of Scripture, when Paul writes his letter to the Ephesians, and he says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. He's addressing directly the children in the assembly when the public reading of Scripture is done because he assumes they are there and present. And if a child is old enough to understand those words, children, obey your parents, then they're old enough to be in the worship service. 
Not to mention, as we will see in our text today, there's entire families that are in the worship service. Now, let me just say as your pastor, I know it goes on, and I get it with visitors, but not with members. Some come here, and they've got, say, a fifth or a sixth grader, pre-COVID days, obviously, and they drop them off in Sunday school, and they come to the worship service, and when both are over, they go home. And they don't worship with their children. God has called the children to worship with their parents. The scripture says in Proverbs, he who walks with the wise becomes wise, but a companion of fools will suffer harm. And so parents, it's our job to encourage our children. Again, in verse two, Paul's exhorting God's people. When he had gone through those districts, he had given them much exhortation and he came to Greece. Now the Bible tells us after Paul encouraged the Ephesians, he went through Macedonia. Turn back a page to Acts 19 in your Bible. Acts 19 and look at verse 21. Um, Let me give you some context. Now after these things were finished, Paul purposed in the spirit to go to Jerusalem after he passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, after I've been there, I must see Rome. Now, one translation says Paul decided in the spirit, but that's a little bit weak. It's a strong word, Paul purpose. The Net Bible and the ESV says Paul resolved. In other words, his human spirit is being led by the spirit of God. And if it's true in your life, it's always, of course, going to be in conjunction with the revealed will of God because God's will never contradicts his word. And when you obey what you know, you grow and you become more and more sensitive to the Holy Spirit. So Paul wants to go to Rome, but first he wants to visit the churches in Macedonia and Achaia. And he's going to, if you read the parallel epistles, to collect money to bring some gifts to the impoverished churches there in the city of Jerusalem. And so let me bring up the map again. Uh, He's traveling through, there we go. He's traveling uh, uh, from Ephesus and he makes his way around this horseshoe, horseshoe, so to speak. He goes to Troas and on up to Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. And then he ends up in Greece. He ends up in Greece. And so, again, these are some churches that he had had an influence on earlier. He's doing follow-up. So when we read here in verse 2, when he had gone through those districts and given them much exhortation, he came to Greece. Where in Greece? The end point there, Corinth. And he spent three months there. How do we know that? Because Scripture interprets Scripture. And if you've uh, taken the New Testament survey in the Institute of Biblical Studies, one of the things that we do in that course is we walk through when did Paul write various letters. And so as you uh, read through the Apostle Paul's letter on his first missionary journey, you discover at the end of his first missionary journey, he wrote one book. He wrote the book of Galatians. He's in uh, Antioch of Syria. He writes Galatians right before a very important meeting that's recorded for you in Acts 15 called the Jerusalem Council. During his second missionary journey, um, he writes two books. He writes 1 Thessalonians while he's in Corinth, and he also writes the book of 2 Corinthians uh, when he's in, uh, 2 Thessalonians while he's in Corinth. Then he has a third missionary journey. And on his third missionary journey, Uh, There we go. Um, He writes 1 Corinthians while he's in Ephesus. He will also write 
2 Corinthians while he's in Macedonia, and he will write the book of Romans while he's in the city of Corinth. How does that help you? Because when you're reading through Acts, and you know what city he's in, and what letter he's writing, it like fills in all the details, and it makes it really come alive for you. And by the way, that whole course is available at Search the Scriptures. I spoke with a couple not long ago from Columbia, and they said, we've been listening to the New Testament survey at night. My wife and I go to sleep on it. I said, okay, I'm glad it put you to sleep, you know. And in either case, um, it, it's a great course by which you can have at least a broad understanding of every book in the New Testament. You ought to be able to think of Galatians or Ephesians or Philippians or First Thessalonians in your mind know what the general message of that book is. Uh, that's a working knowledge of the New Testament that God wants us to have. Now, look at verse 3. He runs into a little bit of a snag here. And there he spent three months. And when a plot was formed against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So there were some vengeful Jewish people who wanted to knock Paul off. They wanted to probably maybe throw him overboard on the ship and dispose of his body. And so he takes a different plan of action. Again, back to our map. He's in Corinth. He goes back around the top of the horseshoe, Berea, Philippi, and he is going to make his way to Troas, where we are today, where this church service that we're studying is taking. By the way, a man plans his ways, but God directs his steps. So here's the Apostle Paul. He's planning to sail. But he gets wind of this plot against his life, so he, he goes a different route. Was that a lack of faith? No, that was wisdom. At night, you say, Lord, protect our home, and then you lock the doors, right? I remember when I was a student in college, I had to park my car, and the number one most, um, uh, the biggest lot in the whole city of Boston where cars were stolen. I mean, every day, cars were stolen there. But I had no other choice, so I'd park my car there, and I'd lock the door and pull the coil wire and then pray, Lord, you know, please protect my car. And that's really what Paul is doing here. So that's where we are contextually. Now, here he is in Troas, and I want you to learn from this encounter in Troas in Acts chapter 20, five aspects of a New Testament church that we'll put together with some of the epistles, because we just learned what epistles he's writing even while he's on this missionary journey. Number one there, our fellowship is with the Lord's people. The first observation I want to make concerns who it was that was gathered. And we learn from Paul's encounter in this place that our fellowship is with the Lord's people. Now, the early church was a very diverse group. And you see that even from the seven companions that Paul has on his missionary team. Look at verses 4 and 5 again. And he was accompanied by Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus, and Aristarchus, and Secundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and Tychius, and Trophimus of Asia, but these had gone on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. So they've gone on ahead, and they're going to meet Paul there. Now, let's think through. First, he mentions here in verse 4, Sopater of Berea, and he's further described as the son of Pyrrhus. Why? Because he's a man of noble heritage. That's a typical first century greeting of someone who's of an Aristotic, Aristotic father, or, or in this case. So he's from a wealthy family is what I'm trying to say. He's a nobleman, very simply. He is Sopater, the son of Pyrrhus. Notice also, contrast him with the second guy mentioned, Secundus. Secundus is the Greek word for two, second. He's called second. 
By the way, there is a fellow that serves as Paul's amanuensis who, uh, when Paul dictates, he writes down the book of Romans, and he's called Tertius Three. Remember, in the Roman Empire, there were 60 million slaves. When Rome conquered a people, you could have slaves, some who were doctors, lawyers, some who were plumbers, or whatever they did in those days, from every range in a culture. And they were assigned to families. And so we've seen two Bible burnings in the last couple of weeks saying that the Bible endorses slavery, so let's burn the Bibles. Nothing could be further from the truth. But understand, in the church, there was a lot of slaves, and you might be assigned to a, a master who is a believer. And as a believer, you had a responsibility to submit to the Roman government, and God said you had a greater responsibility if you were a believer to treat that person justly and fairly the way you'd want them to be treated and so on. And so these people were not named. They were numbered because they were like property in the eyes of Rome. Also on this list of seven on this team are Aristarchus from Thessalonica and Gaius from Derby. What does that tell you? It tells you they're Europeans. Further, we're told there's Tychius and Trifimus. They're not Europeans, they're from Asia. And when you analyze the list further, you discover you have Gentiles, not to mention Timothy, who's half Jewish and half Gentile, and you have the Apostle Paul, who's a full-bred Jew. In addition, you have people from the various social ends of the spectrum. You have a, a wealthy man like Sopater. You have a poor man like Secundus. You have different educational levels. You have some who are highly educated, like the Apostle Paul. Most would argue he had the equivalent of a triple PhD. Not to mention you have Luke. Who's Luke? He is the one who writes the book of Acts and the gospel that bears his name. He's a physician. And Luke is present. How do we know? Because the plural pronoun we. So when you read through the book of Acts and you come to the we passages, that's when Luke is present. And he had been dropped off back in Philippi during the second missionary journey. And now by the authorial pronoun, he's back together with them. I won't take the time to do it, but we could look at Acts 13 this morning. And there again, you will find the church in Antioch made up of Jews and Gentiles, people from Europe and Asia and Africa. I can't read this list of seven men on Paul's team and miss the fact how diverse the early church was. Now, again, many mega churches want to create what they call homogeneous churches. So Rick Warren, for instance, in The Purpose Driven Life, he says that if your church is to be driven, it needs to be selective. And so I quote directly from his book. He said, for your church to be effective in evangelism, you must decide on a target. Discover what types of people live in your area. Decide which of those groups your church is best equipped to reach. And then discover which styles of evangelism best matches your target. Imagine what would happen to a commercial radio station if it tried to appeal to everyone's taste in music a station that alternated in, in its format between classical, heavy metal, country, rap, reggae, and southern gospel would end up alienating everyone. Successful radio stations select a target audience. The practice of targeting specific kinds of groups for evangelism is a biblical principle for ministry, he says. Well, first of all, number one, the church is not a radio station, but number two, 
If you say we're going to target all white people or all black people or a certain educational or socioeconomic level, and this is what the seeker-sensitive model has been doing for decades now. They call it target evangelism. And he says, as I just quoted, he has a biblical basis for this. And the biblical basis that he quotes is when Jesus said, don't go into the way of the Gentiles or the Samaritans, go to the house of Israel, that Jesus had a target audience. Oh my, what a misuse of scripture. Jesus said, don't go to the Gentiles, don't go to the Samaritans yet. He begins with a limited commission in Matthew's gospel. Go only to the Jew. Why? Because God was a promise-keeping job, God, and he wanted to show that he was faithful to his promises. But then in the Great Commission, as it's been called for 400 years, we have broadened it to every nation of the world. Look, even the Syrophoenician woman recognized that the Gentiles were worthy of the crumbs that fell from the master's table. Even the casual reader of Scripture will find that the early church was very, very diverse. And yet, Rick Warren says, well, birds of a feather flock together. Look, that's a form of snobbery. And I believe with all my heart that he and Rick Hybels, Bill Hybels, have helped to destroy the church in America. We have growing apostasy in the American church because thousands and thousands of young pastors have been misdirected. And yes, I have a responsibility to call them on this. I have a Bill Hybels is now out of the ministry, of course, very sadly. And all the time, he's leading thousands of churches. He's sleeping with women here and there. It's a sad day that we live in. It's a day of apostasy. But the church lacks discernment. And the reason they lack discernment is because they are untaught. And an untaught church does not have a clear compass in which to evaluate truth from error. Ephesians 2 reminds us that we have unity amongst diversity. Why? Because the Spirit of God unites us. And so if you're living in a community, I suppose, that's all black, or you're living in a community that's all white, or you're living in a community that is of a certain age range, so again, you go to Rick Warren's Website and he talks about a target audience. And so they have a couple of different kinds of people that are described. Saddleback Sam and Saddleback Samantha. And they give you a profile. You know, usually a person who makes between seventy-five dollars and $150,000 a year. They have this particular educational level. And that's our target audience. I met a man once who went to a church in North Carolina and he shared his experience. I said, what happened? He said, the pastor told me not to come. I said, why did he tell you not to tell him? He said, because I was not a part of his target audience. Look, that's disgusting to God. The early church was integrated racially. The early church was integrated age-wise. Look, a church that is all young people is a very unhealthy church. There's an assumption in the New Testament that you have old and young mixed. And so 1 John, so Titus 2 and other passages that speak of the relationship between older adults to younger adults. 
There's a certain wisdom, ideally, that an older adult should have that he can impart to the next generation. There's no hierarchy in the body of Christ, and there's certainly no celebrities, only servants. And so when you read passages like Acts 20, you discover a very diverse church. Paul will say to the church of Galatia, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. Why? Because we're all one in Christ Jesus. Now, our fellowship is with the Lord's people. And if you live in a community that is homogeneous, great. But if you don't, then you should want to reach anyone who moves and breathes pastors, and I have several hundred, for whatever reason, follow me. I was speaking with a pastor in Maine, and he said, you know, I've seen your church. I came and visited one Sunday morning, and he said, it's really different. He said, how do I see that happen in my church? And I said, well, who do you invite to your church? Who do your people invite to your church? If you're highly educated, will you just invite a highly educated person? If you're black, would you invite someone who's white? If you're white, would you invite someone who's black? You see, our target audience is our Jerusalem, and who's ever in our Jerusalem, we should do everything in our power to try to reach them with the plan of salvation. Number two, our fellowship is in the Lord's work, not only with the Lord's people, but it's in the Lord's work. We read in Acts 19 and verse 21, Paul purposed in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem, after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. Now, why did he want to go there so bad? Obviously, there's no shortage of apostles in the city of Jerusalem, so what was his motivation? Well, remember, First and Second Corinthians, we just highlighted, was written during this third missionary journey that we're on. And those two letters fill in the details. And you discover from those letters that there was a famine in Jerusalem. And so the body of Christ in one part of the world came to help the body of Christ in another part of the world. Turn over a few pages to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Turn there, would you? 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. Now, money is not spoken of in Acts 20, but how do I know money was one of the things the early church did on the Lord's day? Because of what Paul describes in this chapter while he's on this missionary journey. Again, the epistles fill in the details. He says in verse 2, on the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. Now, if you've taken my course on biblical finances, then you know that some would argue that you give as you prosper. Some would argue that this invalidates tithing in our day, that you give only as you prosper. Now, if tithing is a new word to you, let me help you out just a little bit. In Malachi chapter 3, one of the most quoted verses in the Bible by preachers, <laughs> unfortunately, when Malachi is preached, sometimes this is the only chapter that's preached. I think I did 12 messages in the book of Malachi. I've preached the whole book. It's a powerful little book, action-packed, in terms of how we should live. But here in Malachi 3 and verse 10, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Now, if you're new to the Bible, the word tithe in both Hebrew and Greek is a mathematical term. It literally means one-tenth. But if you were not a student of the languages, you could figure it out. 
How so? Well, Malachi is interpreted by other passages like Genesis 14 and Hebrews 7. In Genesis 14, where you have the very first record of someone giving a tithe, it's Abraham. And he gives a tenth to Melchizedek. And the Melchizedekian priesthood is highlighted in the book of Hebrews, the seventh chapter. And there it reminds us that he gave not only a tenth to Melchizedek, but then it further delineates it with two Greek words. He gave one-tenth to Melchizedek. Now, let me just say parenthetically that there was one unanimous voice for 1,900 years that tithing had full application for the body of Christ. There was a fellow by the name of C.I. Schofield. He wrote a study Bible, and overall, it was a pretty good study Bible, in my opinion. You may differ with me on that, but I think overall, it was a decent study Bible. And really, it was the second major study Bible ever to be written. But Schofield argued, using texts like this, that tithing was simply for the nation of Israel, and it had no application for today. And because no study Bibles were available, a lot of Christians who wanted to learn the Word of God picked up the Schofield Bible, and sometimes they read the notes like they were written by God himself. None of us are infallible. And so they said, tithing is not for today. Now, let me just say, as Schofield argue and as other argue in this day, they will say, well, tithing is not directly commanded in the epistles. And because tithing is not directly commanded in the epistles, it has no application for today. Well, it is true that while tithing is taught in two of the Gospels, it's not directly commanded in the New Testament letters. But neither is baptism. Baptism is commanded in the Gospels, but it's nowhere ever directly commanded in the epistles. Not once. Now, it's alluded to, like tithing is alluded to in Hebrews 7, but never directly commanded. But I don't know of anyone who would say that baptism is not for today, though there are some people who have actually said that, believe it or not. They said it was restricted just to the, to the age when Christ was walking on the earth. But most don't think that. Uh, look, um, God mentions bestiality nowhere in Scripture, but I can tell you it's an evil deed. Um, God nowhere in the New Testament gives the laws of incest, but I don't think any of us want to marry our sister. God only has to say something once for it to be true. And tithing is part of God's eternal law. You say, well, how do you know if something is restricted to the Old Testament era or it has application for today? Well, number one, if it's illustrative of some truth that Jesus fulfilled through his life and ministry by his death, burial, and resurrection, then it would have no application for today. So you don't bring animal sacrifices to church. The ceremonial and the cleansing laws were fulfilled at the cross of Christ. Uh, there are some Christians in the early church, as you read through the New Testament, because they were raised Jewish, they continued to eat kosher. But you have a direct command in Mark 7 and Acts 10, where God says that you don't have to keep the kosher laws any longer. So when you come to the subject of tithing, it's not overwritten by the New Testament. It is something that is fully applicable. In fact, ever before Moses codified tithing, you find Abraham giving a tithe. Proverbs 13.20 says, He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. When we think about encouraging, we should think first about our own children when it comes to building into their lives. Because if we don't, someone else will. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling 
Search the scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program HTC020. Remember, you can support the ministry of Search the Scriptures by calling or you can give online at searchthescriptures.org. Your generous donation plays an important role in providing biblical teaching and spreading the gospel. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to Search the Scriptures.